The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Last year, the UNESCO World Heritage Committee decided not to officially declare the Great Barrier Reef as being in danger. Greenpeace Australia was furious, calling the decision, quote, a missed opportunity to shine a light on the Australian government's neglect of a natural wonder that remains at risk due to the impacts of climate change. Greenpeace Australia Pacific CEO David Ritter said, under the UNESCO treaty, the Australian government promised the world it would do its utmost to protect the reef. Instead, it has done its utmost to hide the truth. Jay, what is the truth about the Great Barrier Reef? Is it really in dire straits due to climate change? Well, absolutely not. The real truth is that it would be easy for me to accurately say that 90% of everything our audience has heard about the Great Barrier Reef in the last decade is false because it has been a punching bag for the global warming alarmists. Uh, for all of the mainstream media, for all the leftist politicians to use the Great Barrier Reef that people, while they don't understand it, they know it's a natural resource to be protected. Uh, and all they've heard about it is lies. And it is incredibly exciting that in the next hour, we're going to hear the truth about it from one of the world's leading experts on the Great Barrier Reef. So Go ahead and introduce our guest. Yeah, sure, Jay. Dr. Peter Ridd is a geophysicist with over 100 publications and 35 years experience working on the Great Barrier Reef. He works on physical oceanography of the reef and also developed a wide range of world-first optical and electronic instruments for measuring environmental conditions near corals and other ecosystems. Dr. Ridd was head of physics at James Cook University for over a decade before being fired in 2018 for questioning the quality assurance systems used by reef science institutions. Some of the poor quality work relates to the effect or lack thereof of climate change and agriculture on the reef. Dr. Ridd now works unpaid with agricultural organizations to improve quality assurance systems of the so-called science used by the Australian government to make environmental laws and regulations that seriously affect farmers. Dr. Ridd is author of the book, Reef Heresy, which looks at all the threats to the Great Barrier Reef and discusses the wider problem of abysmal quality assurance systems used in many fields of research. So welcome to the show, Dr. Ridd. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Great. Well, Peter, uh, let's start off 
and give our audience a, a general understanding of what the Great Barrier Reef actually is, its size, its location, and its composition. Well, the Great Barrier Reef is off the northeast coast of Australia on, uh, along the state of Queensland, the best state in the whole wide world. Uh, the reef itself is about as big as California, you know, about a thousand miles long. Uh, there are 3,000 individual reefs. Each of those reefs is probably a mile to three miles across, separated from neighbouring reefs, anything by from just a few hundred yards to, you know, a couple of miles. And each of those 3,000 reefs is like an underwater flat-topped hill with vertical sides sitting on a very flat ocean bottom that most of the ocean around it is maybe 150 to 300 feet deep. So the reef is absolutely huge. It's called a barrier because it, uh, if you try to sail from Queensland out into the Pacific Ocean, you will virtually certainly hit the Great Barrier Reef at some point. Mm -hmm. At that depth, can divers actually get down to it? Well, that's the sea, the sea floor that it actually sits on, but it, it, it comes up to the surface from that. So, so if you were a diver and you could dive at 300 feet, you would, you would end up going up almost a vertical cliff onto the reef itself. So what happens is that the reef has actually grown over a million years. So the dead coral as it, as it dies is like concrete. It builds up towards the surface, and that's why they, they're called, that's why they're reefs. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, you've, you've given a, a wonderfully visual uh, description of the reef, uh, starting with the size of the state of California. That is uh, really shocking. Let's look at the history of the reef. How does the reef compare today to what it consisted of 50 years ago, 100 years ago, or as far back as we have any records to go on? Because it's been attacked, you know, that it's being destroyed by man-caused global warming, which I'm sure most of our listeners know is absurd. We talk about the global warming fraud all the time. But uh, historically, what did the reef look like compared to what you just told us 50, 100 years or as far back as we can go? Well, let's go back 20,000 years at the height of the last uh, interglacial, uh, glacial, the ice age, if you like. Uh, when the sea level was about 150 metres lower than it is today. And the reef didn't exist. The reef was actually then under, uh, not underwater flat-topped hills. They were real flat-topped hills covered with grass and eucalyptus trees. And then the sea level rose very, very rapidly and reflooded the Great Barrier Reef and the reef started to grow. This has happened about half a dozen times in the last million years. So the reef comes and the reef goes over long timescales. But if you go back just a, a hundred years, there's essentially no measurable difference between the reef now and what it was then. And of the 3,000 reefs of the Great Barrier Reef, how many, Jay, do you reckon we've lost in the last hundred years? How many of those 3,000 reefs do you reckon we've still got left with brilliant coral cover on them? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you believe Greenpeace, it would be half of them. <laughs> I would suggest we've lost essentially none. We've lost absolutely none, all right? Every one of those reefs is still, you know, brilliant. It's still got coral on it. Uh, if you believe Greenpeace, we've lost half of the reef probably half a dozen times in the last 30 or 40 years. That's how bad the exaggeration has been. 
Now, um, one of the things is that also that we're actually at record high coral cover. So the records go back good records where they've uh, surveyed about 100 reefs every year by the Australian Institute of Marine Science. And they go around each of those reefs. It turns out that since records began in 1985, we've never had more coral on the Great Barrier Reef. We've actually got twice as much coral today, two to three times as much coral today as we had in 2010. And this is despite supposedly having three or four, in fact, devastating bleaching events since 2016. So the reef is in great condition. But what you'll hear from what I've been saying is that there's massive changes in the amount of coral on the reef from one year to the other. It's not like a pine forest that you might have in the United States or Canada, which more or less stays the same unless there's a bushfire or something. The reef goes through these huge cycles of death and destruction. Of course, that is used to great effect by the opponents. But also we've got to remember that the reef is brilliant, all right? It's not like there aren't many, many environmental problems around the world. If you just go to Google Earth and you look at the Amazon rainforest or the New Guinea rainforest, you can see massive areas that have been cleared and they will never come back because they're now under agriculture. That is not the case with the reef. It's the most pristine, most wonderful ecosystem on Earth and it's essentially unaltered in the last hundred years. Why is the reef increasing at times? Well, the coral on the reef increases. So what the, the thing that really kills the most coral is uh, we call them cyclones, you call them hurricanes. The waves from a hurricane absolutely smashes the coral on the reef, especially the delicate staghorn and plate coral. So you can go from a coral which might have, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60% of the seabed is covered with coral um, down to 5% literally in 12 hours. That's how quickly you can lose your coral. And it will grow back over a period of five to 10 years. Um, the other thing that kills coral is a little bit is killed by, by bleaching from hot water events. And also the crown of thorn starfish, there's plagues of those which are also a natural animal and they eat large amounts of coral. So it goes through these big cycles. Mm -hmm. wow. Let's back up a moment. What exactly is coral? I would Imagine that uh, all of our audience has seen a piece of coral in a museum or maybe been near a, a reef, uh, but actually what is coral? Is it animal, vegetable or mineral? Well, actually it's, a, it's, a, it's mostly animal, but interestingly inside it lives a, an algae called zooxanthellae. So essentially it's an algae, it forms, comes in a million different shapes and sizes from great big blocks as big as a small car, in fact, as big as a small house, uh, down to beautiful intricate lettuce leaves or uh, staghorn corals or uh, plates. And essentially, it make, the animal in, uh, that makes the coral makes a calcium carbonate skeleton, which is a bit like concrete. It's very, very hard. And that's why the, the coral reefs can build up because it never rots. And so that when the coral dies, it just builds up and up and up. Uh, but the, the very interesting thing about it, it has an algae that it that lives inside it. So the, it's called zooxanthellae, and these are normally just floating around in the water. It takes these in and grows the, the algae inside it as a method of uh, getting energy from the sun, so it can use the sun. And this is the algae which is expelled during bleaching. So it chucks out the algae. The algae actually gives the coral its colour. So most corals are a bit of a browny sort of uh, colour, and that's from the zooxanthellae inside it. Chucks it out, and they go white, so they're bleached. 
But of course, they usually don't die. They'll actually often then take another form of zooxanthellae inside it. If they don't do that, they will die. Uh, almost all corals will have some zooxanthellae inside it. So the algae is well, necessary to keep them alive? The algae pretty much. Now they can they can live for a long time without the algae. It's it gives them energy from the sun. So the it's a symbiotic relationship. Presumably, what happens is the the coral animal likes to have this algae because it gives it energy. The algae likes to live inside the coral because it's a nice, comfortable place to live, you know, and 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 grow. So when the coral bleaches and it actually bleaches from a number of different things, it can bleach from hot water, it can bleach from cold water or virtually any stress, the coral will chuck out the algae for whatever reason. And usually it doesn't die and it will often take in a different form of zooxanthellae. So for example, different types of zooxanthellae will make it more susceptible to bleaching or less susceptible to bleaching. So it can take in like a high octane zooxanthellae and grow really fast in relatively cold water. But if it gets too hot, it will bleach. So you, you can grow really fast, but if you get a hot year, you might die or bleach. Or you can take in a low octane zooxanthellae, which means that you grow relatively slowly, but are not susceptible to bleaching. So there's a trade-off that the, that the corals is, is doing all the time. And all they need to do is change the zooxanthellae to either grow fast or slow or be more or less susceptible to bleaching. So bleaching is actually a survival mechanism to chuck out the zooxanthellae to bring in a different form which is more suitable for the temperature. So if it bought in the wrong type, chuck it out, get in a better type. So rather than being the poster child for why global warming is a disaster for the world's environment, corals are actually better adapted to changing temperatures than any other organism. Humans or any animal or plants have to go through cycles of reproduction. So they need to have offspring, the fittest offspring that can deal with high temperatures are the only ones that survive and they'll pass their genes in cycles of um, generations like that. And that could take hundreds of years for most animals to adapt to different uh, environments or different temperatures. Corals can do it in a couple of months. They chuck out the zooxanthellae, bring in the new zooxanthellae, takes a couple of months. They're good to go for another two or three degrees higher temperature. Mm -hmm. Let me stop on bleaching just for a moment, because I, I, anybody who knows anything about the coral reef has heard the term bleaching, and that's what the alarmists have been saying, that it's global warming caused by man that is creating the bleaching of the coral and that it's a totally negative thing. You have now you know, explained away their lies, which is fabulous. Tom, you have a question. Yeah, what is it that defines it as an animal? Because I'm, I can't think of any other animal that is fixed on site like a plant. Um, oh, there, there are sea, anemon sea anemones. Um, there's quite a lot of animals that will do that. Um, I mean, I'm not a, a biologist specialist, but no, there are lots. But it's certainly a very unusual, it's an ancient uh, animal of that, that type. Mm -hmm. yeah. Where else in the world are there coral reefs comparable to the Great Barrier Reef in Australia? Well, there are individual reefs in many parts of the world. So they're mostly in the hot water areas, you know, around the equator. The best, uh, most diverse coral is actually to the north of Australia in what they call the Coral Triangle. So uh, Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, the Philippines, 
actually the corals grow even faster there because the water is warmer. Essentially for every one degree increase in temperature, corals grow about 20% faster. So uh, the corals on the Southern Great Barrier Reef grow slower than on the Northern Great Barrier Reef. Remember we're in the Southern Hemisphere, so South is cold. Uh, so the cold water, they grow slower than the hot. Um, but there's, there's um, great reefs, you know, obviously in Florida, but there's nothing in terms of the system, the Great Barrier Reef system, 3,000 reefs altogether. Nothing comes close. There's a barrier reef system off Belize in Central America. There's others in New Caledonia, New Guinea, but nothing comes close to the Great Barrier Reef. How far north can a reef grow? Or let's, let's define the water temperature or the air temperature in which reef building is possible and where it is definitely not possible. Well, you can see it along the state on along your coastline that you've got great reefs in Florida along the Keys, but as you move north, the reefs stop. Okay, now it's not because there's no corals. There are corals right up as far as Alaska, even certainly in the north of Scotland, but they can't form reefs because the growth is not fast enough to take into account of the erosion of the coral. You know, you can grow something, even concrete eventually erodes. So it's, it's when the balance between the growth, when the growth is bigger than the erosion, then reefs will form. Um, so you're talking in the mid 20 degrees, anything colder than that, especially in winter when it might get down. Oh, that's degrees Celsius. I should try to do the calculation in Fahrenheit. But uh, so anyway, you, you, you get the idea. Hot water, reef growth, cold water, you still got corals. They grow awfully slowly. Yep. That's the opposite of what Greenpeace says. <laughs> Well, exactly. This is the crazy thing. You, you've actually picked the organism which can deal with temperature better than any other organism, right? But yeah. they've picked this. I mean, I mean, and the bleaching thing, which you were mentioning before, Jay, uh, you know, they claim that mass bleaching never occurred before 1998. I mean, this is said again and again and again, that ne it never occurred, that yes, individual corals bleach, but never mass bleaching. Now, this is despite, you know, the first expedition to the Great Barrier Reef from the Royal Society of London went in 1929. And guess what they observed? They observed bleaching in 1929. <laughs> now, was it mass bleaching in the sense that did hundreds of reef bleach? Well, how could we have known? Because you know, uh, Sir Morris Yong, who was the, the gentleman from England who went out there, he only had one boat and a couple of helpers. So he couldn't tell whether the whole reef bleached. He didn't have satellites. He didn't have aeroplanes. But there's no doubt bleaching was occurring right back then. Yeah, the, so the, UNESCO was quite right to not declare it as being in danger. Yes, though they haven't finished yet. You know, they're still contemplating. I suspect because the, the government has changed they again won't um, declare it, but they're still deliberating on that uh, decision. And in fact, one of the things, one of the arguments that was used by some of the very eminent scientists uh, down here was because the previous government had, according to them, a very bad policy on climate change, then we should be punished by have, having the Great Barrier Reef declared as endangered. But because now we've got a new uh, left to centre government, I suspect everything 
that they're not going to declare it. By the way, I think they should just get it over and done with it and declare it. If they, I mean, not that I think it's endangered, but they, it's it's this sword of Damocles that's over our head all the time that it's going to be declared. And we should just say, all right, declare it. We don't give a toss what you think. We know our Great Barrier Reef is beautiful. We can just go out there and see it. We don't have to listen to you Greenpeace people. <laughs> so if it were declared in danger, what impact would that have? Well, it would actually have very little impact. It just means that there'd be yet another headline that would go around the world, but that happens about three or four times a year, some new story about the death of the Great Barrier Reef. What's new? Um, I mean, we have at the moment our premier tourist attraction, Australia's premier tourist attraction. There's three, right? There's the Great Barrier Reef, there's the Sydney Harbour and its bridge, and there's Ayers Rock Uluru, right? And we keep on telling the whole world the Great Barrier Reef is completely knackered. <laughs> Why do we do that when it's in such good condition? Uh, so the endangered thing really wouldn't make a great deal of difference. It's just yet another punch. and You'd have to roll with that one. Mm, what about nice. scuba diving? And uh, what about people that want to be right up close to the reef uh, in the water? What, what are the limitations they may have? in uh, seeing the reef up close and personal? Well, actually, the biggest limitation is that most of the reef is a long way offshore. So it's, you know, 30 to up to 100 miles offshore. So the actual place that probably 99% of the tourists goes is probably a dozen little areas on just a few reefs. So that the, the area they'll see will just be a few acres of coral that are easy to get to, easy to moor a boat, and that you don't lose tourists too easily because you don't want them drifting off in the current and losing them. So that is actually the biggest problem in seeing it, that it's, firstly, it's a long way to Australia, then it's a long way out to the reef, but it's huge and there's just such a lot to see. And even the people who have been studying it all their life have really only seen a small fraction of it. Well, what are the limits to getting up? In other words, if I wanted to go down there and uh, scuba dive, uh, you know, many miles off the coast of Australia, can I dive onto the reef? Could I touch the reef or it, it, all these things outlawed? Oh, no, no, de definitely die. They certainly uh, don't want you to touch it because, you know, uh, in the tourist areas, uh, tourists touching it with their, their fins or their hands can damage the reef. But, you know, you're talking about a tiny area of the state of, California, but they don't want you to damage it from the point of view of, you know, other tourists want to see that particular coral. But yeah, you can go and see it. Um, about a third of, about maybe a tenth of the reef is more or less totally closed off. So virtually nobody's, you know, super duper national park. About two thirds of it you can fish on. About one third you're not allowed to fish. There's great fishing out on the Great Barrier Reef. Mm. Well, generally any reef attracts fish. Is that not correct? I mean, uh... Yeah, so uh, that would be for sure. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, of course, you tend to fish the carnivorous fish on, on our reef. So in New Guinea and other places, they'll, they fish every small, small animal. And that's actually one of the biggest uh, dangers to the reefs is the overfishing, especially with literally dynamite fishing. None of that happens in Australia. That area, by the way, the size of California, along that coast, you know, well over a 1,000 miles, the total population is only about 700,000 people living along that coastline. The top probably 300, the north, most northern section of, say, 300 miles, the total population living along that coast is about 1,000 people. Whoa. You know, we're talking about one of the 
It might be 2000. I don't think it would be. We're talking about one of the least populated areas on earth. Almost no people pressure whatsoever. And that's why the Great Barrier is just utterly fabulous. And it's just incredible that we've managed to convince the world that it is in such diabolical well, uh, right. situation. Right. And, and that begs the question. Why have the leftists, the fraudsters, been so successful of planting a seed in the minds of the general public that man-caused global warming is threatening the Great Barrier Reef? Why have they been so successful? Well, the, the reason they do it is because they can, okay? They, they found they can. So they, essentially what's happened is that, remember, the reef is hidden, right? Nobody in America knows what it looks like, uh, almost, Almost nobody in Australia actually really has a really good idea of it. Maybe only 10% have actually visited it, probably not even that many, and they will only see a small fraction of it. It's underwater, and, of course, a huge amount of coral occasionally dies. There's no doubt about that, as I mentioned before. You can literally lose half the reef. Now, at the moment, we're at record high coral. We've never had more coral on the Great Barrier Reef since records begun. Despite all these huge bleaching events, you know, we, we lost maybe 93% in 2016 and more in 2017 and then more in 2020 and then more even this year. And we're at record high coral cover. So I'm getting <laughs> sidetracked. Go figure. But so they hear that and they never hear the, about the recovery. So, you know, after five to 10 years, you have a total recovery. So if this was if a reef was on top of a mountain in the middle of a big city, you'd be able to see it recover and say, oh, look, the reef is looking really good today, isn't it? It's much better than it was five years ago. But because it's underwater and nobody can see it, the scientists can hide the truth, right? And they keep on doing that because they know from experience they can do it and there is no consequence for getting it wrong. Now, all these scientists have been saying we've lost half the reef and it's a diabolical shape. And now we've got record high coral cover. What is the reputational damage to them for essentially telling things which were untrue? They've been caught. It must have been wrong that a lot of coral died because coral doesn't just grow over a month or so. It takes, you know, five years to 10 years to regrow. It is impossible that such a lot of coral died. They were caught telling untruths, but there is no consequence for them for being so badly wrong. So they can tell these untruths, they can get away with it. They found they can get away with little untruths. I won't call them lies for obvious reason because that has other connotations, but they're certainly untruths. And then the, the untruths have just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And now they're just whopper untruths. You know, we lost 93% <laughs> of the coral, despite the fact that clearly we haven't. Now, the other thing is that they've removed dissenters. So dissenters get easily removed. The peer review system, which uh, we could talk about if you like, is a disaster because what it does is it ensures groupthink takes hold. So there's no quality checking. There's no reputational damage for being getting stuff wrong. And the other thing probably that happens is that a lot of the biologists are are emotional about the reef, and you can sort of understand that. Uh, so when they see coral die, they get all emotional. And that's really why we're in such a disastrous state with the reef. Not that the reef is in a disastrous well, state. It's the science of the reef. What, yeah. can we see, what can we see from the air? I mean, you talk about the fact that few people can see it. Uh, do you have to go underwater to see it? Or what do we see from aerial photographs? 
to see bleaching, you actually have to go underwater. You can see a little bit of bleaching uh, from the air, but actually you can make some awful mistakes. Jennifer Marahassi has been uh, pointing this out for uh, a couple of years. Look, from the air, you just see a spectacular sight of, you know, <laughs> a, a great reef. Um, but yeah, you really need to get underwater to have a good idea of um, if there has been damage occurring. Yeah. So they equate bleaching with death. I mean, I think the two sort of are synonymous in the eyes of the public, but what you're saying, and this is the important thing to emphasize, is that bleaching is part of a natural cycle and they're not dead at all. No, I mean, sometimes some reefs do die, right? It, it, there's some, some corals do die, but most of the time they don't die. You should look at it as a survival mechanism. It's actually things are getting too hot. Chuck out the, the, the zooxanthellae, probably bring, or at least likely bring in a different zooxanthellae, and you're off to go. In Australia, I don't know whether it happens in America, a lot of trees, um, because we're a very dry continent, in very, very dry uh, years, they will drop all their leaves and they drop it to conserve moisture because you lose a lot of moisture from the leaf. That is a survival strategy. The tree looks dead, but it, it may not be. It will quite possibly recover from that. So, yeah, it's a survival strategy. But the way the biologists and these so-called scientists have, have set it up is that bleaching does equate to death. And they'll say, I mean, some of the stuff is utterly scandalous, right? So in the 2016 event, they said 93% of the reefs bleached, right? And most people think, my goodness, 93% of the reef died, right? What they actually meant was that 93% of the 3,000 reefs experienced some coral that bleached. So you could have one little coral as big as my table here that got bleaching. Uh, and remember each of these reefs is a couple of miles across. That reef just with one coral on it is now part of the 93%. And it probably didn't die. Peter, you're being very specific and I'm trying to figure out how you know what you just told us. I mean, do I fly an airplane 500 feet over the ocean and I see uh, an outline of the reef? Do I see the color of the reef? I'm trying to figure out how we know what you've told us. Well, actually, we don't, right? Because what they do is they fly an airplane at 500 feet at 150 miles an hour over and they look out the window and they think they can see bleaching and they can't, right? You just, you, you can't actually get an accurate picture of bleaching that way. You can get some idea, there's no doubt. But remember, these reefs go down to, you know, 100 feet water depth. From an airplane at that height, you can see maybe five to 10 feet into the water with any clarity, right? Yeah, you can see corals below that, but to see their colour, which is what you've got to be able to see, you've got to see it go white, it's very, very difficult. So you're only looking at a tiny, tiny fraction of the corals. And even there, it's very easy to mistake a light-coloured coral for one that has bleached when it hasn't actually bleached. And of course, you certainly can't tell whether it's died. You've actually got to put a diver into the water to do that properly. And when that's done, and of course, that's done by the Australian Institute of Marine Science, every year they, they go around at 100 of these reefs and they check out how much coral is on the reef. And we've got record high coral cover. I want your listeners to just keep on just saying record high coral cover. <laughs> this means that the coral did not die. It couldn't have died, right? Because, you know, if we'd lost 93% or 50% of the coral in 93 and then more in 2017, 2020, 2022, 
It doesn't grow back overnight or over a week or over a month. It takes five to 10 years. That means that they told untruths about how much coral there was. Can I also say there's this incredible line that they now use because they're acutely embarrassed, right? (laughs) We've got record high coral cover despite these bleaching events. So what's the line of argument they use? They say, ah, it's still bad because it's the wrong type of coral that we've got now. It's the branching and staghorn corals that we've got. I think this, this is a good point to break Uh, for our commercial. And then let's get back to what you just said, Peter, of how no matter what truth we tell, uh, the left twists it to their advantage. So we'll start there after the break. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. Back with geophysicist Dr. Peter Ridd, 35 years experience working on the Great Barrier Reef. We're hearing that a lot of what we've been told is just simply wrong. The reef's in great shape. So over to you, Jay. Well, Peter, it sounds to me like everything the alarmist left says about the reef is upside down. It's not just wrong, it's 100% wrong, and they're actually casting lies that uh, flipped the truth on its head. So summarize again how we know that the Great Barrier Reef has been growing in recent decades rather than being decimated by man-caused global warming. Well, there's certainly more coral on it than, uh, than actually since records began. We're at record high coral cover. And that's because each year the Australian Institute of Marine Science, since 1985, surveys about 100 reefs. They actually tow a diver around the perimeter of every reef. It's equivalent, if you did all of them together, it's equivalent to towing a diver about a 1,000 miles. So it's a huge wow. transect around these reefs and they estimate the amount of coral cover. So that's why we know we're at record high coral cover. We've never, uh, since records began, we've never actually had more coral. So we should be celebrating. We should tell Greta that, you know, calm down, it's going to be okay that these scientists have completely exaggerated the death of the Great Barrier Reef. Well, there's hardly a single environmental issue that isn't identical. Whatever they say is is false, upside down. They're never wrong a little bit. They're wrong uh, totally and just seems they want to 
plant these uh, scare stories. Summarize for us the resilience of coral reefs. I want to leave uh, the audience with the idea that uh, if there's one environmental construct on the face of the earth that can manage itself, coral reefs would uh, be high on the list. Well, that's right. I mean, if you look at some sectors of the reef, they'll go from, so if you, you look at coral cover, which is the fraction of the seabed which is covered with coral and there's various other organisms that live there not just coral it can go from down as low as five percent to ten percent coral cover and then 10 to 20 years later you could have 60 percent coral cover massive changes in coral cover but i think actually i used to give a lot of talks to school children about reefs and how the reef the great barrier reef is in such good shape and i used to say to them that if we had a, the, you know, the horrific nuclear war and we were all obliterated, and I suspect mankind would be wiped out, what would be the two animals that I reckon would, would survive? One would be cockroaches. They seem to be able to survive anything. And the other is coral reefs, right? Because they are so adaptable. They've been around for 200 million years. Uh, you know, massive climate change, massive other things. And even, you know, you look at what happened at Bikini Atoll, where the Americans did all the, a lot of their nuclear testing. Google, um, Google, go to Google Earth on Bikini Atoll. You see these huge chunks taken out of these Great Barrier Reefs by the nuclear explosions. And now there's wonderful, wonderful coral growing on Bikini Atoll. So it's an example of, of fabulous coral and the ability of the reefs to recover. I know it's a little bit trite. Uh, it's a very different to climate change, but they are incredibly adaptable organisms. Mm -hmm. A slightly different topic. I'm wondering, people act as if the change in pH in the water is a threat to coral. Is that the case? I do wor worry somewhat about that because some of the measurements um, have demonstrated that coral does slow down growth. But actually, um, when you correct some of the errors that have been made on the, the growth rates of corals, you know, actually living in situ rather than in experimental conditions, there is no slowdown in the coral growth rate so far, at least. But mm -hmm. I do worry about that a little bit. It's the only thing which I think is a serious threat to the Great Barrier Reef. But as I say, you know, much of this science is complete rubbish. Uh, it's difficult to work out what is solid and what isn't rubbish. I think I was mentioning before that, you know, that the scientists are extremely embarrassed at the moment because <laughs> we've got record high coral cover and they've said that we've lost 93% of the reef, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and that, then they make up excuses for themselves, which further, in my view, damages their credibility. So their excuse at the moment is that it's the, we've got too much of the wrong coral now. And this is a disaster, almost as big as a disaster as having no coral at all. Because you see, these are the corals that are most susceptible to high temperature bleaching. So we've record high coral cover and the corals we've got left are the, the have now regrown are the fast growing staghorn and plate corals, which are the most susceptible to bleaching. And because of climate change, there's gonna be more and more bleaching. So there'll be less and less of this coral. And this despite the fact that we supposedly lost all this coral in the last six years from four bleaching events, right? So the bleaching actually produced more of this coral, but they're now saying that having more of this coral is even more of a problem. So there's this terrible circular argument. Well, they do this all the time. It doesn't matter uh, how you correct them. They will just jump on whatever you said and make it bad. But I want to add to uh, Tom's point about the uh, pH 
And almost all the data on a dramatic change in pH of the oceans is wrong, just like all the data you're describing on coral reefs. There uh, have it's barely measurable that the pH of the oceans have gotten more acidic, as uh, the leftist scientists are saying. We really can't find it. You're saying that were the pH to change dramatically, that would be a threat to the coral, but it isn't happening. And when you understand the volume of the oceans, it virtually cannot happen. Look, you're totally right. The, the, the total pH change so far might be 0.1 of a pH unit. So it's very, very small. But interestingly, for coral reefs, the pH changes by 0.4 of a pH unit virtually every day, right? Between night and day, it changes by 0.4 of a pH unit. This is the respiration. As the sun comes out, all the plants in the zooxanthellae get going. The pH of the water actually changes quite dramatically on a coral reef. So it's happening all the time. It's not like corals have no ability to deal with large pH swings. So that is another reason why I don't worry too much. In terms of uh, reefs, um, what is the, the big threat? It's just people pressure, actually. If you're too close to a big population and you're very close to the shore, as lots of reefs are, not the Great Barrier, the Great Barrier is a long way offshore. But if you're close to the island of Java, where there's 100 million people living there, and everybody's fishing of it, and there's sewage, and there's all sorts of other things, that is a problem. But actually, when you look at the state of the reefs report, the last one came out a couple of years ago, most of the reefs around the world are doing all right, you know, um, provided you don't actually mine them for the calcium carbonate to make concrete, or you have too much fishing, or you dump huge amounts of sewage and waste on them, Corals would do fine. And the other thing that they've been proven to do is that even when you have smashed them for whatever reason, uh, like happens in Southeast Asia occasionally, they come back when you remove that pressure. Mm. So unlike a lot of other ecosystems around the world, which won't come back because they're now under farmland, that's the end of them, basically. Coral reefs are actually the, probably the least of our worries. We should be worrying about rainforests we should be worrying about other environmental threats and, and other threats to mankind, not this uh, supposed threat to reefs. Mm -hmm, for sure. Why have so many academics lied uh, about the state of coral reefs? Is there some incentive in Australia not to tell the truth? Do they maybe make more money by writing articles about the danger of the coral reef and they, they can then get a, a grant to study it? What's the incentive? That, that keeps truth uh, out of the limelight. Well, look, the, the whole scientific edifice is now utterly corrupt, right? That is just a fact, I'm afraid, that huge areas of science you just can't trust. We have the replication crisis. Uh, John Ionides from Stanford University talking about, you know, how half the, the peer-reviewed literature is wrong. It's just as simple as that. It's wrong. We're finding this in physics, in chemistry, in you know, psychology, probably 90% is wrong in some areas of psychology. Uh, it comes down to that there just isn't enough quality assurance of the science, right? We use a system of peer review. The scientific institutions claim it's the gold standard. We know that 50% of peer-reviewed work is now wrong because when replication tests are done, that's what the number that you come up with. Peer review is not when, you know, this work is all the experiments are redone or that a dozen scientists pour over the work for, you know, a month. 
It's just a quick read by a couple of scientists for a couple of hours. That's peer review. That's your quality assurance system. Now, so we have utterly hopeless quality assurance systems in this public good science. In industry, the quality assurance systems are good because if you get the science wrong, you kill somebody like you do in an airplane or you could break the company if the if the product doesn't work. But here it doesn't matter. You know, oh, well, yeah, we got it a bit wrong about the reef. We said it had all died, but actually it's now got record high coral cover. Nobody's going to lose their job. They gather around and make their own excuses. So this is the problem. We And it's not just in Great Barrier Reef Science. It's in climate science. It's in COVID science. It's in every area of biomedical science. It's even in physics, hard mm. physics, that we have this problem. So that's why I started to really do a lot on, on challenging some of this wrong science in the Great Barrier Reef. And what was interesting was that nobody would listen. You'd utterly destroy some... A piece of work and show that without any shadow of that was utterly wrong and it didn't make any difference that work kept on being cited even though it was known to be wrong right and I, I, I asked the question why and then I read about this thing called the replication crisis and how it's in all areas of science and we have a fundamental quality assurance problem and until we solve that many areas where we're using science are going to uh, unfortunately be wrong yeah, I've heard that peer review is often called PAL review because they have their friends reviewing it. And of course, they're all going to agree. <laughs> exactly. So you produce groupthink. There is nothing well, more uh, certain to produce groupthink than peer review. Yeah. Peter, it's, it's really exciting uh, to see how you have really dove into this problem of quality assurance with science. And so I will preempt myself uh, and tell you, if you're willing, a few months from now, I'd like to do uh, another interview with you just about this. Obviously, uh, it's a passion of yours, and I think it would be a fabulous hour to point out uh, what has happened to science. When I uh, studied in my early years, peer review was good. I was editor of, uh, of journals, and I was kind of in charge uh, of it. And, and you're so right. Everything has gone downhill. And it's worth spending an hour pointing to all the things you're talking about. But uh, that'll be down in the future. Right now, if you don't mind, I think our uh, audience would be interested in your uh, personal story uh, about, you know, what happens when you stand up against uh, all the misinformation in your field. Yeah, well, you can lose your job. There's no doubt about it. Most scientists will um, just keep quiet. Uh, I know a lot of scientists who will agree with me, but they, they just keep quiet because otherwise they'll lose their job. They'll look to me to see what happened. I got to the stage where I was towards the end of my career anyway, and I thought it was worthwhile taking a risk. I was pretty sure I, what was going to happen, what did ha was going to happen, uh, <laughs> happened. I didn't know when, it was just a question of time. So what happened to me was I'd been showing so much this work was wrong and it really came to a head when there's a very famous picture of some coral reefs on a place called Stone Island. And there was this picture of the, the reefs at a very low tide where the corals was coming out of the water in 1893, showing beautiful coral. And then another picture supposedly from the same spot today showing absolutely no coral and they said this is an example of how we've lost all the inshore reefs and I knew that this couldn't possibly be right so I sent my guys down 
to take some photographs of the reef. And of course, they could find wonderful coral. In other words, they'd said there was no coral on this reef and we proved that there was wonderful coral. And I said that there was a quality assurance problem uh, and these, these uh, scientists need to check their facts before they spun their story. Anyway, I got censured for that. And then a year later, I was talking about this quality assurance problem and essentially saying that because peer review is now known to be hopeless, if you are just using peer review as your quality assurance system, then that institution's work is untrustworthy because 50% is not good enough, right? Mm. Anyway, that ended up getting me fired. Um, we had a big legal case. A lot of Americans donated to my legal challenge. Uh, we raised over a million American dollars in, uh, in fees. We ended up going to the High Court, which is the equivalent of the American Supreme Court, fighting on the cause of academic freedom. So we weren't fighting a scientific uh, case. We were fighting on whether I had the right to say that. Now, it was one of those strange legal things that we, we ended up winning. It was a very long battle. We ended up winning on the main legal point that James Cook University broke the law in censuring me for what I had said. However, <laughs> this is a funny thing. Well, it wasn't that funny. They said that the university had the right to tell me to keep quiet about their illegal behaviour. So because I'd spoken about what they had done, and they actually had the right to tell me not to, to, to speak about it and did tell me not to speak about it. They still had the right to fire me. Anyway, that's one of those funny legal things. Um, we ended up putting in an important precedent into Australian law that uh, I had that right. And in fact, there has been a scientist since then who I'm pretty sure it's all gone very quiet, who has escaped his university's um, wrath and has been able to say something because of that fight which we've had. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes, yeah, so you're a trailblazer in that regard. <laughs> what, uh, how have you pursued your science since? Well, essentially what I'm doing is I'm working on uh, videos on the Great Barrier Reef, uh, doing uh, that type of stuff to try to get the message out. That, because, of course, the mainstream media don't want to know that the reef is brilliant. You're always working on the fringes. So YouTube videos and, and other things. We've also got a, a thing going called Reef Rebels, uh, where we've taken a bunch of uh, young people out to the reef to, sh to show them just how brilliant it is. And we're probably going to expand that. I'm working also, I'm paid with the Institute of Public Affairs in uh, Australia here. To, uh, and one of our sort of things is to push the quality assurance problem, push the reef problem uh, along. So I do that in sort of semi-retirement. Mm -hmm. So what's the importance of coral reefs, like to the ecosystem, to humanity? I mean, Besides being beautiful, what's the importance to the world? Well, I think that's enough, actually. <laughs> you know, they, <laughs> look, they, they, they are in many parts of the Pacific. They are an important resource. People fish on them. They're obviously a, a tourist place for us. Um, but, you know, nobody in North Queensland or anywhere else wants to lose the reef. Nobody. We, we take no risks with the Great Barrier Reef because it's just such a wonderful thing. So it has an intrinsic value, which doesn't have a dollar on it. You can put dollar values on it, I guess. But this is why it's such, it's such wonderful news that all that's, I mean, in Australia, half the, the school kids think that the reef is completely damaged. They're in depression about it. They think that by the time I grow up, I won't, it will be gone. Why are we doing this to our children? You know, mm. when we know, and these, these, 
you know, I was going to swear there because these scientists know now that the reef is in good shape. They know what they're doing to the children. They know that they are telling things which are now untrue and they keep on doing it. Mm-hmm. And it makes me so cross. Mm-hmm. Well, the yeah. reason the reason is government control. I mean, and nothing to do with man-caused climate change, nothing to do with the Great Barrier Reef really has anything to do with science. It's to Mm -hmm. scare the public uh, into giving the government more power, getting rid of uh, our previous form of government, reinstituting communism and and socialism. Uh, People think I'm being uh, too harsh when I say this, but it's absolutely true. If people understood, in fact, you brought it out with the Great Barrier Reef that the, the damage has been essentially zero when the opposition has been saying it's all but been destroyed with regard to man-caused climate change. And there are very few people that will say that what I'm about to say is man's impact on the temperature of our planet is zero, zero. It's not a, a, a tenth of a degree. It's not, it's not even three zeros before you get to a whole number. It is absolutely zero but it's uh, you're putting your uh, career in jeopardy if you you say that. So uh, most of my friends would would rather say, well, it may not be zero, but it's inconsequential. Well, mm-hmm. it's yeah. inconsequential and no one can put a number on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, with the reef, um, you know, climate change isn't the only thing that's supposedly killing the reef. The farmers are supposedly killing the reef. That's how I got into this to start with. So pesticides, mud from the soil erosion and nutrients from fertilizer. So they're cutting down on nutrients. This is exactly the same as the idea that's happening in Canada and Holland, uh, cutting down nutrients for not good reasons. You know, you talk about inconsequential. The supposedly pesticides are killing the Great Barrier Reef, but when they actually try to measure pesticides out on the reef, right? So they run off the land out to the reef, which is, you know, up to 100 miles off the coast. They are in such low concentrations, you cannot detect them even with the most ultra, ultra, ultra sensitive scientific equipment. Zero, nothing, right? And yet farmers are blamed for killing the reef with pesticide. It is just crazy. Now, these people, they know that this is true. They know that. So they make up, oh, yeah, well, but in the inshore regions, we can just detect it. And there's some fish that swim from the inshore to the offshore 100 miles. And <laughs> somehow or other, this damages the reef. You know, you think, well, you guys are just barking mad here. You're just making this stuff up. Yeah. Um, it's so frustrating. When, when you take students out to the reef, do they dive, actually? Do they actually go in the water? Yeah, well, on the occasions we have, yeah, definitely. Um, Mm -hmm. We tended to go to inshore areas rather than uh, offshore areas, and they they are slightly more affected by the land, you know. So, (laughs) I mean, still a tiny, tiny amount, but the inshore reefs are maybe 1% of the coral. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are the ones which we used to go to. You do scuba diving yourself on the reef? I used to do a lot. So when I worked for the Australian Institute of Marine Science, um, putting in instrumentation, tide gauges, current meters, temperature sensors, and all the rest of it, mm-hmm. uh, we <laughs> it was never very brilliant diving for us because we weren't counting beautiful fish. We were putting down concrete weights and <laughs> this type of stuff. So it was more industrial scale stuff, putting in big moorings to measure. 
And of course, the you know people think the reef science is all about biology, but it's not. The physics, the chemistry, and the geology are absolutely important to understand. And most of these biologists have no idea about the physics and the chemistry of the reef. Mm-hmm. So you must have taken some pretty incredible pictures over the years. I was never a photographer, so no, not not a great deal of that. But you know, that's a real skill to really do. And actually, that's an important point that. A lot of the pictures that you see are very unrepresentative of what you will actually see when you go to the reef. So that they've put the the blue filters on, they've got the sun in the right place and the colours have been really brought out. The reef is actually usually much more drab than what uh, the pictures will show. Because when you go down 10 metres in depth, you lose all the red light. So everything's got this blue washed out color and it goes a little bit gray and brown. So some people end up being a little bit disappointed Mm -hmm. when they see a real coral reef because it doesn't have those overdone colors that the the photographers will (laughs) make. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, it must be like an alien world though when you're down there. It is. No, look, they, they are just staggering places. The, uh, the, the, the fish is what really gives you the, the huge colour, the intricateness of it. But I also find that the, the history, the geological history of the reef, I find utterly fascinating. The fact that these things are so old, um, that they've made their own landfalls. There's no other, I don't think, apart from stromatolites, there's no other creature that builds its own hill, you know, and these are not small hills. These are hills that are two to three miles long and a mile across and, you know, uh, 300 feet. And this has been built over a million years by these creatures. You need to understand that. And you need to understand how, you know, when the sea level was rising, say, you know, about 10,000 years ago, the actual beach was eroding by up to 50 yards every year. So every year it was rising so fast that that was the amount of erosion. And of course, putting massive amounts of mud into the water, the reefs had no problems dealing with that at all. And yet farmers are now blamed for a little bit of mud going out on tiny infinitesimal amounts going out on the reef is supposedly smothering the reef, where the geology is proving that that is just not the case. Wow, wow. we got to wrap up there. That was a very exciting interview. It was very fun. I almost forgot about following the time. It was so interesting. So our interview today has been with Dr. Peter Ridd, geologist and a specialist on the Great Barrier Reef, about how it's actually doing great. And we got to look into this more. I'll be uh, promoting your book, Reef Heresy, specifically under the podcast. And that's a book that can really summarize, I guess, a lot of what you just said, Peter. Yep, it does. It sort of goes into that, hopefully, in sort of in a layman's style. Um, Yeah, thanks for that. Okay. Well, that's great. So this has been Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris with our guest, Dr. Peter Ridd, signing out from the other side of the story. 